Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guys. We explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Christopher Phillips. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Georgia and is presently the John and Dorothy Hermanese Professor of American History and University Distinguished Professor in the Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the University of Cincinnati. He is the author of several books, including The Rivers Ran Backwards, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border, The Civil War and the Border South, The Making of a Southerner, William Barclay Napton's Private Civil War, Missouri's Confederate, Claiborne Fox Jackson, and the Creation of Southern Identity in the Border West, Damn Yankee, The Life of General Nathaniel Lyon, and Freedom's Port, The African-American Community of Baltimore, 1790-1860. He is also the co-editor of The Union on Trial, the political journals of Judge William Barclay Napton, 1829-1883. Welcome to our Missouri, Christopher. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. Now, to begin with, tell us a little bit about you know, how and when did you develop an interest in Civil War history and really 19th century history? Well, that's kind of an origin story, I guess. Um, I think I was born interested in the Civil War. That's what my grandmother tells me. Um, my first real memory of having a defining interest was um, uh, I went on a, a, a vacation with my grandmother and grandfather and, and an aunt, and we went out east. And for whatever reason, I was about five. And they decided um, for some reason I needed to go. And I, uh, my grandmother told me later is that she felt like I was um, preternaturally interested in the past and that I needed to see the, um, the real American past in, in, this, in the sense of the early American past. So um, they took me and we saw all the requisite sites and um, um, you know, camp the whole time because my grandparents didn't have a lot. And, um, and it was real dedication on their part for them to take me, I think, because clearly, you know, um, they, they were making this trip available to me, resource-wise and everything. But point is, uh, we went to Gettysburg after a number of sites in Virginia and Maryland and, and other places. And, um, and I remember very, very specifically, um, we had a, a, a truck camper that was one of these things on top of a pickup truck. And I was in the back when we were rolling through the Gettysburg um, national battlefield for the first time and we were actually on uh, the Emmitsburg Pike coming north and I am um, from Maryland and I saw these cannon um, at the entrance the southern entrance to the battlefield and um, and I was just entranced by them and so we get off to where we're camping which turns out uh, I found out later is kind of to the north and east of or I'm sorry west of uh, of Gettysburg, and um, and they were unloading and, and unpacking and everything, and turned around and I was gone. 
And, um, and I can remember very, very specifically um, heading out to find those cannons. And, uh, and I, I found them. Um, and uh, I also remember very, very clearly that a ranger kind of comes up and says, are you Chris? And I said, yes, as I was marveling over these things. And he said, well, we got some people worried about you. We're going to take you home. Uh, so they took me back. And, um, and years later, when I was doing research in the area, I decided to, to, to retrace my steps. Turned out that was like a two and a half mile walk which isn't bad for a five-year-old, I think, <laughs> to go see the cannons. And, um, and so my first book, I dedicated my grandmother, and, um, who was still alive, and thanked her for showing me those cannons because it's been a lifelong fascination and a, and a romance and, uh, and a profession as well. And, and had she not done that for me, there's every reason I would never have been interested. Uh, why the 19th century? I really can't say. Honestly can't say because uh, it was something that I can remember as long as I lived being interested in that era around the Civil War. And it didn't just have to be the war itself. Uh, I don't know why, though, um, other than the fact that it was a tangible um, experience that uh, moved me as much as it has moved Americans for 150 years. Uh, for, for a young kid, who can tell exactly, but I do know that she set me on, it set me on a lifelong path that I've never regretted today. Now, that's a, that's a great origin story and, 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 a, and an interesting focus on your early life there. As you begin to get into school, into college, even after finishing your PhD and beginning your publishing, talk about the field of Civil War history. I mean, what was the discussions at that point? What was the themes? What were you reading to understand the Civil War and even to understand Missouri? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, and it, that, it, it was a heady time. Uh, to be in graduate school because there were some spectacularly good um, historians who were doing their work in all fields of Southern history, all fields of Civil War era history. And yet at the same time, it was also very much a turning point in terms of Civil War scholarship. Because when I started graduate school, um, the Civil War was still largely being taught uh, the way it had been since the centennial. It was this uh, brother's war. It was uh, a war uh, that, uh, when, where the nation came apart and then came back stronger together. Um, there was a lot of um, very traditional military history, uh, lots of things of this sort uh, that, that really hadn't changed a great deal since the 1960s uh, and even a little before then. Um, but when I got in uh, in the 80s, suddenly, um, there was a, 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 a pronounced new focus that I think emanated in part from the change over in Southern history general, generally, and that is that the, um, uh, the focus uh, was put squarely on um, slavery, uh, African-Americans, and the, the changing nature of the war. So when I got uh, all through uh, my younger years and, um, and through my undergraduate years being interested, but, but not dedicating myself yet to the, as Lincoln would say, to the, to the task. Um, the, um, you know, the military narrative was foremost. And, um, and when I began graduate school, um, it was a fairly well-known uh, uh, assumption that, um, that Gettysburg and, and Vicksburg were the high watermarks of the Confederacy and also the high watermark of the war. Um, that began to change, and it began to change pronouncedly. 
with uh, with scholarship by, by people like Jim McPherson um, and a little bit later uh, at, at Ayers. Um, and these folks began to question uh, when the war really did change. And of course, emancipation became the high watermark in many ways um, through this changing scholarship. Now, why Missouri for me? Um, I was raised in Illinois and it was the closest place that um, uh, where there was any Civil War history really from where I was living in Western Illinois. And so it seemed a natural thing to me if I wanted to get in touch with, um, with the Civil War narrative um, closest to me, um, not being um, you know, raised in Virginia or Georgia um, or, um, or Pennsylvania. Um, it seemed a natural place to begin to look, to peer in, so to speak, to, um, to what the Civil War was all about. And so it was a practical issue for me. But also there was another thing in, 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 uh, for me, and it, and it began to be, become clearer. Uh, I did a master's thesis on Nathaniel Lyon, and, um, and I began asking a lot of questions because I had read Bruce Catton, uh, who was the dean of, of uh, or the don of Civil War um, uh, writing at the time, and had been since the 60s. And he once claimed that uh, Lyon would have been the grant had he not been killed. Uh, and that really made me wonder about a lot of things because Missouri, of course, was a unique uh, state and its uh, situation was unique. And uh, when I began to approach, and that was a master's thesis that then turned into a book as a graduate student um, for me. But as I began to approach the broader lens of uh, Civil War scholarship, I recognized even more um, clearly that the Missouri narrative was still very much like Kentucky's. It was dominated by uh, pro-Confederate, lost cause sort of um, biographies. Um, and that there were bigger questions, I think, that needed to be asked. And that then set me on a path to writing a number of things, uh, partly because they hadn't been done. Second of all, that they hadn't been done in a more presentist way. And thirdly, the entire um, border and western part of the of the war itself really was still not very well known to people outside um, outside Missouri and the West, and so I thought for all these reasons it would be a good moment to um, to begin uh, rewriting a narrative that had never really been written. Um, I thought uh, correctly. Now, thinking about that scholarship, and as you were writing on it, you mentioned Nathaniel Lyon. Um, how did you try to build upon that scholarship? How did you try to critique these earlier interpretations in terms of the Civil War in Missouri? And particularly, how did that come together in the Rivers ran backwards? Oh, oh well, okay. Well, let, let's set the ri Rivers ran backwards um, a little bit different, uh, in a different um, light, because it was uh, a culminating um, work of scholarship that required me to look deeply into these various individuals and these various um, uh, events uh, over the course of, of 20 years. Um, even though I, I conceived the book much earlier, it took working through a lot of that other, um, those other thought processes and those other um, questions before I could really get to Rivers. Um, and so I'll be the first one to say I could never have written, I probably would not have written Rivers very well had it been the first thing I wrote, um, because it took uh, it took a lot of percolation, it took a lot of immersion um, to 
to kind of get the whole border idea firmly in my head. That said, um, the previous works that I did, whether in biography or whether in edited form, um, helped me to answer a number of questions, such as how does a border become a border and when? And um, how does the war figure into that? How does the post-war figure into that? Because there's an awful lot of uh, revisionism that goes into um, creating and sustaining narratives. Um, and each state has its own role in that. And who are the people, uh, who are the, the, um, um, the influencers in the creation of those narratives? And um, so, you know, why and given the fact that it began as a master's thesis and it, and it was published as a, while I was in graduate school, I really didn't devote myself as deeply um, to the answering the, the broader questions of, um, of how, you know, how does a border become a border? Um, what, um, who are the movers and shakers of, of, of creating a narrative, um, sometimes alternative narratives, often alternative narratives. Uh, it was really kind of a, um, a, a person who was really, really influential in one state that happened to be a very unique state. Um, and, and why hadn't his, why hadn't he been examined um, sufficiently, uh, not since 1862, and yet he was such an, a driving force in those, that, those first six months or so, uh, thereabouts, in the state of Missouri, and why don't we know anything about him other than he just kind of explodes onto the scene and then Missouri explodes into violence. And then he uh, has exploded himself at the very first battle, really, to speak of in the West. Um, and yet he is influential enough uh, nationally that um, Herman Melville includes him in, in, as, as one of his poems in his uh, very forgotten battle uh, pieces uh, collection uh, published in 1862. Lyon's one of them. Um, Missourians remember Lyon. But uh, as I found, <laughs> they have very different memories of him, depending upon their politics, depending upon their understandings of the war. And I decided to carve into both. I decided that he was first and foremost, um, very volatile, perhaps more volatile than we'll ever know. He was also deeply ideological, uh, more ideological than I think we realize. Uh, and yet at the same time, he was no abolitionist. In fact, he was quite um, critical of abolitionism and abolitionists it's, uh, themselves. And, um, and so he um, kind of in a, in a bull in a china shop sort of way, he decides that he is for his own, I, I thought, I still think for his own personal reasons, he's gonna punish this, the South and he's gonna punish the pro-slavery element in Missouri um, who have in his view have done so much to jeopardize the nation. And, um, and then because he was a person who was um, dogmatically rigid um, and, and also um, um, had a lot of power in his hands suddenly with the help of, of, of some powerful politicians in Missouri, Blairs, um, he, he exceeds his authority in many ways um, uh, almost uh, as soon as he got it. And he plunges Missouri into uh, a, a violent conflict that might have been inevitable, um, but, but certainly not at that moment in time, not from the very beginning of the war. 
And so I think that, that Lion was a, a perfect person for me at that stage in my career to look at and, and ask hard questions, such as, um, was there such a thing as radical unionism uh, in, in Missouri and in the nation? Um, was Lyon uh, a person who was uh, assisted by uh, politicians above him to gain power only by the law of unintended consequences to see him run amok with the power that he, that he got? Um, and, are, and, and was Missouri, um, did he save Missouri for the union or did he plunge it into a chaos that perhaps could have been avoided at least in the scope uh, that it attained, um, or especially at that moment in the war. And those are questions that I decided that was enough for me, um, kind of looking at, at what happens to Missouri after Lyon, um, that's, a, that's a long and a, and a complicated story that I wouldn't be able to tell really very well until I began to look at it in a broader lens and that would culminate in, in several books, but particularly Rivers. Talk a little bit about that element. Well of biography. We'll mention, we'll talk about the, the journal here in a little bit, but as someone who is writing biography with Nathaniel Lyon and, and, and Claiborne Fox Jackson, how is that different? Is it more challenging perhaps than writing a traditional narrative of, of a time period or a subject matter? Yeah, I, th I think that, and that's a, a fair question to ask. Uh, and and it's, it's telling to me on uh, kind of on several levels that, um, that Pulitzer Prizes are given for history and biography. And to my knowledge, T.J. Styles is the only person who's won the Pulitzer Prize in history for a biography. Uh, my advisor, Bill McFeely, won a uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, for his biography of Brandt. Um, and he always felt a little bit, um, it was always an asterisk sort of Pulitzer because he was a historian. But he won a biography or he won for a biography in a biogra uh, biography category. And, um, and Bill always felt a little bit um, uh, not fully respected for that. Um, and he always told me, uh, biographies allow you to have a, a defining person, <clears throat> but you shouldn't necessarily let the person define uh, the topics of the biography. Because for a biography to be important, it has to tell a broader story. It has to set a person in a place, in a time, and then make a case to the readers that this person's, and that's the chart that, you know, as Stephen Oates said, that's the, uh, that's the fundamental charge of a life writer, make that person relevant and important to the broader uh, narrative. And, um, and I, find I found Lyon, I could do that very easily in Missouri, but he would have been more challenging to make relevant to a national, in a national way. Um, other than kind of that early rush to war. Um, but when I set about, and, and kind of against my will a little bit, because I was asked to write a biography of Clay Jackson, uh, the secessionist governor of, of Missouri, I, I wasn't particularly interested to begin with, um, because I just thought this is, this is a person kind of like Lyon on the other side who uh, is a flash in the pan, so to speak. He's gone before he really even appears, but he, he makes a lot of hay while he's there in this one place, and then he's mostly forgotten. But secondly, I was really concerned about um, uh, trying to romanticize someone like Clay Jackson, uh, because biographies have that 
it, it, it's a fine line that you have to walk between romanticizing your topic and um, and being um, uh, being hard on your topic, uh, of the person that you're interested in. And so biographies are hard that way. Uh, you have to constantly test your biases um, and test your own feelings about this person. Um, I know that um, Adam Goodhart felt I was really too hard on Lyon um, and, and wrote a fairly extensive footnote about how, you know, he couldn't understand how I, I even finished a biography of Lyon of someone I detested so much. Um, and I, I didn't necessarily think that that was fair, but I took his point. I also then turned it around and realized that Goodhart's um, overall thrust was to, um, was to honor in many ways, or certainly to compliment uh, the wide awakes and the, the radical unionists who felt that there was, uh, this was a moment that had to be won. And uh, Lyon was one of those guys who um, set about trying to do that. So there's, you know, he's got his own perspective on that. I felt that Missouri was, as a neutral state, um, was so fragile that uh, the last thing they needed was a volatile character. Clive Jackson, on the other hand, represented the, the duplicity of, uh, of many pro-slavery politicians in Missouri who were willing to let secession come and work actively behind the scenes for it. And, um, and then in many ways, try to sort of wash their hands and say, oh, no, 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 wait, hold on. I'm a Douglas man. And, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to oppose um, I'm going to oppose joining the Confederacy, but I'm also going to um, be hypercritical of Lincoln's efforts to try and um, and militarize the nation and, and uh, use war as a means of, of uh, reuniting the nation. And so I felt that that was a really hard sell. That would be a hard sell to write a biography of Clayburn Jackson, uh, because I would end up being completely biased. <laughs> about someone who was acting um, um, duplicitously. And in the end, I finally realized that a lot of the ideas that I was thinking about that would end up in rivers, um, this was a way of testing some of those ideas by not writing a traditional biography, but rather writing a, a, um, a, a state biography through one person. And so if you notice in that book, um, every other chapter is a theoretical chapter on the history of Missouri at a particular time uh, that coincides with, with Jackson's own political and or social and or economic um, um, progress. Uh, Missouri was also involved in a, in a kind of a progress of its own or a, an evolution of its own. And I wrote those chapters to try and uh, understand um, the, the world that Jackson was living in, not just the, the, the world that Jackson was influencing because he became a product and was a product of the land of the state that he was living in uh, and his own background as well and his own um, future. And so I felt satisfied in the end that that was a good enough biography um, because it, it, it did more than simply tell the who, what, where, and why of this particular person, the way that Lyon, um, the book on Lyon had done. Um, and so I also you know felt that it exercised some ghosts. And some of those ghosts were of um, the lost cause uh, writers who had made Jackson out to be this, um, this hero uh, of, of the state. 
a person who was willing to stand up against the forces of consolidation and, uh, and who had uh, done a courageous thing in, in um, standing up for his state. And, um, and it, 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 that Jackson became then a hero for those people. And I found that that simply, that, that just wasn't tenable in really understanding the totality of what happened in Missouri, uh, particularly given the fact that Jackson knew quite well uh, that the um, Missouri Convention had voted overwhelmingly against secession, and yet he wouldn't let it uh, rest. Uh, ironically, neither would Lyon. Lyon did not trust that vote. He felt that the, the slave power in the state, uh, which to him was the ultimate evil, were actively at work, and that sedition and ultimately treason was being accomplished despite the vote. And that many, in many ways, he saw the vote as a cover-up. Uh, and so you've got an extremist on uh, the, the, the Union side, uh, but you've also got an extremist in many ways in Clay Jackson who refuses to um, accept the will of the people. And these are the people who are uh, actively engaged in those first months of, uh, of the war in Missouri in a place that, that, uh, uh, that never did vote to secede. Talk a little bit about then shifting into William Barclay Napton and, and, your, and your work involving him and, and, and the editing of his journals and his writings. How do you do that to come into some more element of biography where you're walking a fine line? How do you take someone's write, writing and edit it into something that is coherent for the present day audience but doesn't necessarily lose the words at this time? Um, well, uh, Sean, that's what, what the task of, of historicism is, I think. Um, you have to, first of all, I, I think you have to take someone at their word when they write their words down. It's, it, I think it's an easy and a very cynical way to approach studying the past that you um, kind of, and unfortunately we're in a, in a time right now when we all too often and all too easily uh, don't take people at their words when they use political speech. Um, I think that, that you have to, if they're, if they're writing it down and especially if they're writing it down for themselves and for no one else. And I ran into the Napton Diaries when I was working on Jackson. Um, and I realized how remarkable they are. Um, and I didn't even read the entirety of them, but I read enough in them to know that this is a person who was one, deeply attuned to the political language and the, and the political uh, environment that was going on in the nation over a long period of time, but particularly in that civil war period. Secondly, this is a person who had influence enough that he, um, he was having, he was convincing people uh, to act in a particular way. And lastly, he was a person in a position who uh, should not have had the, that, um, uh, that kind of political influence. He was a judge. And then, and, and I shouldn't say last, that was next to last. Last was this is a person, and again, kind of hinging back to some of the ideas that I wanted to test out uh, that I knew were, would drive towards that, that bigger book at the end, Rivers. Um, he was a person who wasn't even a native Missourian or even a native Westerner. He was from New Jersey. And yet he becomes almost the, the, um, the oracle for uh, the pro-slavery Missourians at the time. 
his arguments are their arguments. Uh, I think in part because he's influencing people, but in a in larger part, he's really a, he's really plugged in, and um, and he does have influence. Um, he is a delegate. He's a, and two and on the um, the committee on resolutions for the 1855 slaveholders convention in Missouri, which turned out not to be a convention of large slaveholders, but rather a convention of aspirant slaveholders. Uh, he's a person who's from New Jersey gets educated at the University of Virginia, where he is he is immersed in the whole Jeffersonian mystique and the old Republican ideas about slavery being the bedrock of a stable nation. And he comes out to Missouri, and he, um, throughout much of his life, he patterns himself on both Jefferson, his ideal, and also the idea that um, there is a master class, and that master class is a slaveholding class. And that master class um, um, has a responsibility to um, to perpetuate the institution, uh, not just in the area where they are, but but for the future growth of the nation. And being out on the edge of the the Great West, uh, Napton is a perfect place to um, absolutely immerse himself and, and to become a devotee to the idea that slavery must spread. And then he becomes radicalized in many ways to that idea, but never really accedes to it because as a judge, um, he's supposed to be unbiased and he's not supposed to be politically influenced, but of course he is. Of all of the people that I wrote about, I think I liked Napton the least uh, because he, he, uh, he didn't have the courage of his convictions. He hid behind in many ways his robe uh, in many ways, but yet he was, he was an active and thoroughgoing um, influencer and, and politico, uh, part of that kind of a, a vestibule of that famous central clique that ran uh, that pro-slavery not of politicians, Jackson being one of them, John Sappington being another, and there are uh, you know, six or eight of them. Uh, Napton is kind of running in that circle and he's talking to these people and he's attending political meetings and he's, he's doing all of that. Um, but he really doesn't in a courageous way um, take a stand on much. What he does is he writes in his diary and he writes and he writes and he writes and he writes about everything that's going on nationally, locally. Um, he was absolutely plugged into every single um, political issue. And as you read through his writings, you realize how deeply conservative he is. And that conservatism, his conservatism, um, revolved around property rights and, and that included slavery. And he was devoted to that cause. And so really doing Napton was not something I set about to do. It was a recognition that this was a remarkable set of writings from a thoroughly biased observer and participant who then has a compelling story of his own wartime story, where uh, Napton is um, kicked off of his seat uh, in the Supreme, in the Missouri Supreme Court. Um, by the way, he's, he was kicked off prior to war too, just in time not to be able to rule on the Dred Scott decision, uh, the third one, I think, or the second one, I don't recall which. Um, uh, and he had it all pre-written <laughs> before the case had ever been heard. Um, and he was gonna, of course, rule that Dred Scott was not entitled to his freedom. And he was actually waiting on a book 
that he had had to get from an international library um, when he was voted. Uh, the, the Missouri Missouri changed this law about judges, and they had to be elected, and he was not elected, so he didn't get to make that ruling. Um, but then he is put back on the Supreme Court right before the war, and he loses it again because he refuses to take the oath of office. And the reason he won't take the oath, or not oath, but the oath of allegiance, I'm sorry. The reason he won't take the oath is he says he took an oath of office. Um, and that, that taking another oath um, implied his disloyalty, uh, which he was. <laughs> and he wrote privately to his wife how dis disloyal he really was. He supported Virginia's secession. He supported the South, uh, but he wouldn't come out and say it. Um, and so he loses his seat. And after he loses his seat, uh, he's at his, his um, estate out in uh, Saline County, <laughs> Elk Hill, as he called it, named it, obviously, for a, a, that was one of Jefferson's homes. And so he named it for one of Jefferson's homes because he really was his ideal. And, um, and local militia um, are uh, of the belief that he is disloyal and hiding it. And they come to his farm several times to, um, to raid it, partly because he's got two sons in the Confederacy serving, and uh, partly because they believe that, um, that he's using his, his farm as a, to stockpile weapons for local secessionists and guerrillas. So they raid it and they do find a few weapons and, and he gets in a little bit of trouble, but then his wife um, in childbirth for their 10th child um, dies suddenly right after that last raid and she bleeds to death. Uh, she's about 40 years old and bleeds to death after she gives um, stillborn birth to their 10th child, um, ninth son, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and then she dies. <clears throat> and it's a horrible um, thing. And he writes about it in his diary. And I thought to myself, I, could, I couldn't bring myself to do it. On the very day that my wife dies trying to give birth to our child in a horrible um, experience. And he sits down to write about, about his wife dying. Uh, and they, uh, within days, uh, he's exiled uh, to Kansas or to uh, St. Louis. And he, um, he's barely able to bury his wife before the uh, federal troops run him out. And he's forced to live in St. Louis the rest of the war where he practices law for a living, but he's not really devoted to it. And he becomes one of those casualties of the war on both sides that we hear about in which circumstances have changed the, his life completely. And over time, and this is where I began to fuse these, these later ideas of, of, of not only lost causeism, but, but victimization, uh, uh, Napton sees himself as a victim and he fuses those narratives. He and the family fuse those narratives of, uh, of, the, of the federal troops raiding the farm and forcing Melinda, his wife, into premature labor. And she dies you know, in the garden while, uh, because of shock. Um, and the, it, it occurred to me the power of family memories and family experiences surrounding a war that I as I tell my graduate students, the last place I want, want, would have wanted to be in the Civil War is anywhere in the state of Missouri. Um, that would have been the, the positively the worst place to be if you're not in the middle of a battlefield itself uh, on the home front. Uh, and, and here is a, a perfect example of how uh, 
war memories are created. Um, you can actually watch the events, which were, by the way, unrelated in the Napton household. They were just a few days apart, uh, but they become fused into this very bitter, very angry, very pro-Southern, very pro-Confederate, very anti-Lincoln, very anti-Union memory for one family that persists for generations and generations and generations, right down to the present. And it made me realize that the memories of the Civil War in a place like Missouri are very much in the hands of the families who created it and the circumstances of, around which it was they were created. And Napton was a perfect example of this to me. He had a compelling narrative, he had a compelling um, um, pen, and he had a compelling um, uh, experience. And all of them fused into what I, I, I didn't really think that the book was gonna be very um, interesting to a lot of people, but it will be very helpful to a lot of people uh, because his words um, need to be able to be available to people uh, anyone understanding or interpreting um, Missouri during the Civil War, particularly from the, the pro-Southern, pro-slavery, pro-Confederate side. Now, we talked about at the beginning your own interest in the Civil War and, and the origin story of that. And in, in a modern-day context, we have a lot of books about the Civil War, a lot of subject matter. There is a lot of interest nationwide. There are also people who might say there's too much focus on the Civil War. Why do you think the Civil War has been so deeply studied by scholars, and why do you think it produces such a interest and reaction from the general public? Well, um, as I like to tell my graduate students, that's above my pay grade in some ways to try and explain, um, because the interest in the Civil War has been um, a, a national obsession um, for at least 100 years, um, it, certainly for the last absolutely for the last 50, but even before that. Um, the Civil War is the most studied event in, the Amer in American history, uh, the most written about, should I say, event in American history because it was the most important event in American history. Um, important in the sense is it is the closest, it is the only uh, true stress test that the nation has ever had uh, of that magnitude in which the nation actually broke apart. And the reasons behind it are, are legion and they are um, endlessly influential and important to understand. Uh, and, we, and it comes in waves. Uh, there are times when the Civil War is less important than others. Um, it was deeply important in the 60s and that is in, in some ways how Bruce Catton becomes the dawn of Civil War writing. Um, because there is a, uh, you know, that anniversary had something to do with it. But, um, but then Ken Burns comes along in the 1990s and rekindles kind of this, this waning edge of uh, interest in the war, um, in large part because um, he did what Bruce Catton had done, which is to tell the story uh, from the perspective of of those heroic Americans um, and, and uh, American figures who we are so familiar with. And he put them central into that narrative with a slight twist. And I know this a little bit because my advisor was on the uh, advisory committee for the Burns documentary, um, Bill and um, 
Jim McPherson and Barbara Fields um, were all part of kind of the Ken Burns uh, team in, um, in, in giving the documentary the, the appropriate meaning. And uh, I remember Bill saying that, that uh, Burns had finished the documentary and, and he called them all to New York to, um, to view it for the first time. And, um, and so they sat and I watched the entirety of it, which is what, 13 hours or something, at least 10. And they watched the entirety of it. And afterwards, they, they just said, where's, where's slavery? Where's emancipation? None of it was really in that narrative. And, and Jim in particular, and Barbara and, and Bill all had spent their entire careers, along with people like C. Van Woodward and, uh, and uh, Leon Litwack and, um, and a host of, of really, really good academic scholars um, writing a narrative that was more realistic in which slavery was at the center. And, um, and Burns apparently had written something very different or had put together something very different. And, and so they said, listen, you've got to do this. Uh, and, and it has to be confronted, not just uh, for a few moments, but for uh, a fairly lengthy amount of time. Uh, and so they added an entire first narrative that wasn't there, or a first um, um, episode that wasn't there that brought the background of the war into the foreground and brought slavery into that foreground and then got the war off sort of rather than starting at Fort Sumter where Burns had originally started it, um, they started it back in Kansas on the Kansas-Missouri border, border uh, where it should have been started, where the first, um, first shots were fired of the Civil War. Um, and so these uh, really good scholars influenced that narrative. And then they said, you've got to have something at the end to show, unfortunately, uh, that the nation didn't entirely heal, even though the portrayal was, if you recall that, that reunion in Gettysburg in, in 1913, um, 50th anniversary, seemed to, seemed to uh, suggest that all these, these old veterans had just reenacted Pickett's charge and then embraced each other instead of firing at each other. When they, the old codgers got the Confederates got all the way to the top of the cemetery, uh, cemetery ridge, um, and so there were some there were some edits there as well to remind us that the Civil War didn't wasn't an entire healing process through the tumult of uh, of wartime that there was still a lot of bitterness and there were divided narratives about this war that persist, um, and so those themes. Uh, I think um, particularly the theme of an unreconciled civil war. I think Missouri uh, can be, has, I tried to put it in the center of those uh, unreconciled politics, unreconciled narratives, unreconciled um, civil rights, unreconciled um, reunion. Um, all of those things that in, in today David Blight is, is the leading example of the leading oracle, so to speak, of the unreconciled civil war, uh, or one that was reconciled in a unique way that, that ultimately uh, was to the detriment of African Americans. Um, I think Missouri is, was at the center of that story before that story was told nationally, um, because it was already in the process 
of those divided narratives, those um, competing narratives, and um, not necessarily for the good of things, um, much like what would happen later in the rest of the nation, the, um, um, the pro-Confederate narratives won. And it set Missouri down a path, political and otherwise, uh, in understanding the Civil War in a particular way and understanding the nation in a particular way. Today, uh, I think we're seeing kind of a third moment of this interest in the Civil War, but it's, but it's manifesting itself in a, in a very um, complicated way. And that is these fights about Confederate uh, monuments that are everywhere in places like Virginia. And, and, uh, and so much of the fight is being waged, but they are, you know, they dot the landscape. And uh, the meaning behind those, uh, Missouri ha had its own period of, of retelling or telling in a, in a unique way. Um, Amy Fluker has recently written a book uh, that talks about these contested memories. Uh, for me, the politics of Missouri turned hard right, hard Confederate after a certain point. And, um, and it really, you know, there might've been contested memories, but there was only one memory that really became, um, that became the, the influencing memory. And that is that pro-Confederate memory. Um, I think that you know the fact that that Missouri today is in the SEC gives you a sense of potency that still lingers around that narrative, because for some that's it's kind of the you know the the crowning achievement <laughs> to to join the South after the fact, long after the fact through athletics. Um, it might be about money, but it's also about identity, and uh, Missouri has had that contested identity for a very long time. Who, who are we? Who were we? Um, and, and who should we be going forward? And I think that there is something attached to uh, the conflicts that we've seen in places like St. Louis and the kind of the contrasting uh, realization that now uh, Missouri plays in a conference that was born of the old Confederacy, a Confederacy that Missouri never officially joined. Uh, and it gives us a sense like Kentucky that that is, um, it's a way of, of, of fighting cultural politics. We've talked about your writings. You talked about biographies, looking at other people's writings. You've been to the sites. You've, you've been through the papers in the archives. What is an area of Missouri history that perhaps is still deserving of a little more attention in the future from scholars, the public, everyone? It's funny because when um, Missouri history has come a long way since I began reading it. Um, when I first looked into the history of the state, I found, as I said, um, there was something of a lost cause uh, focus in an awful lot of the writings and the biographies. But now we've got, um, you know, there have been a number of, of awakenings, so to speak, uh, as Adam Goodhart called his, his book on 1861, Civil War Awakening. Uh, Missouri Awakenings that have occurred since I started uh, writing about it. Um, there now we, we have a, a, a fuller view of, of uh, gorillas as being not just um, kind of what, um, uh, Robin Hoods or, um, um, or uh, uh, protectors of home and hearth, but rather these, are, these folks are deeply ideological. Many of them, uh, I would argue most, 
um, uh, TJ Styles did an enormous um, service to the history of the state by writing about Jesse James, not as uh, as he'd been written about for so very long. Uh, this this kind of a Robin Hood figure, this um, this bandit who um, um, who was fighting against massive national and international forces, but rather as a cold warrior who carried on the, you know, the, the Civil War. Um, his exploits um, published in um, Kansas City Times by John Newman Edwards uh, to tell a narrative and to influence people that, um, that this war might have been lost in certain ways, but it hasn't been lost in other ways. And we're continuing it. We're fighting for you, the people, uh, the common people. Um, he did a real service to the to to the state for that book. Um, the focus on on Germans is incredibly important uh, and understudied. Um, and recent books by uh, uh, Walter Kampoffer and Zachary Garrison um, tell that story really well and in very complicated ways. And they also tell that story as to why the German narrative disappears in large sense from the history of, of the state after the Civil War, whereas we know it was a deeply important um, um, part of the narrative of, of uh, Annabella Missouri and the arrival of the Germans and the communities that they, that they founded and, and the way they lived their lives. Um, it all kind of gets, just disappears in the, in the general histories of, of Missouri after the war. Um, the lives of African-Americans, uh, free and slave, uh, have suddenly come into focus. Uh, Diane Moody Burke has done such uh, a, a wonderful book, Slavery's Borderland, um, uh, in, in looking at how slavery actually worked on small farms, not on big, big farms, but small ones, and, uh, and how in many ways slavery becomes central to the lives of many people who we would assume maintain a, a, a deep and abiding loyalty to the union, but in many ways uh, found their own, um, their own war experiences tested by that and also their own personal um, uh, ambitions and aspirations are, are deeply affected by that war and especially by emancipation, how that changes people's uh, white people's in particular view of, um, of their relationship with their state and with the, with the government, with the national government. Um, this is coming into focus now, uh, extremely important. I think that there's an area that could still be told better and that is civil war uh, women. I don't think that we really have uh, a, a deep body of scholarship. We have some scholars who are writing on civil war women or civil war era women, but I don't think we have that big book. Um, we have some of it. Leanne Weitz uh, wrote not just about Missouri, but about the nation and, and called this the war a crisis of gender. Um, and I think that we need more of that uh, focus, I think, on, on Civil War Missouri um, and particularly post-Civil War Missouri. I think we still need to know uh, more about that. Um, we don't know anything uh, really about Native Americans in the Civil War era in Missouri. And yet they were, um, they were still very much a force uh, in parts of the state. Uh, and also the last thing that, that I think has uh, 
come to the fore better, uh, thanks to Brooks Blevins, um, is the, the focus on the Ozarks, which again was kind of a hidden, complicated, contested story. And it fits with the general pattern of Appalachian studies that has been uh, really at the forefront of, of Civil War era studies for their regions. And I think the Ozarks is now starting to get its due in ways that, that, um, uh, that it should. Uh, I think that all of this is, has become, um, since I started working on Missouri, has become more part of the, uh, our understandings of, um, of, of this very complicated state. And, and I, I consider still to be a vital state and I've convinced a number of my, my scholar friends of that after a few years of trying. Well, to conclude today, what projects are you currently working on? What's, what's on the horizon for you? I am working on a book on the inner civil war in the Confederacy, uh, a book that, um, that looks at uh, particularly the Western states and how their experience of the con in, within the Confederacy was very different uh, than, than states farther east. Uh, and I, um, I'm using a, a rubric that Gary Gallagher gave us that um, in his Confederate War that the, the ebbs and flows of Confederate national, nationalism were, uh, were tied with battlefield progress. And I'm applying that lens in a broader way and I'm finding that Western states like Arkansas and Texas and um, Louisiana and Mississippi um, find their uh, place within the Confederacy contested right from the start, and then um, increasingly becoming untenable because of the arrival of federal troops far earlier than in the rest of the Confederacy, and that that influences the Confederacy as a whole. And so you've got a, a whole host of people who um, either refuse to support the Confederacy or they uh, offer only um, uh, feigned support for the Confederacy, um, you've got uh, Ozarkers and, and uh, Hill Country people and Appalachians. And um, you've also got uh, in Texas, you've got Native Americans and Tejanos and uh, Germans uh, in lots of different states. Uh, all of them never are. And then you've got, of course, the um, what they call Tories or, or Unionists who oftentimes are deserters. Uh, come back from the Confederacy. You've got a, a, a really complicated pastiche um, that ultimately, I think, forces us to confront the question that is certainly on our minds now um, uh, of, of commitment to our, to our nation or to our national government um, manifesting themselves in the Confederacy. Was it ever a majority um, exercise? Or was it always a, a, a minoritarian exercise, meaning just for, um, not only just for slavery, but for just for slaveholders? Um, until, of course, uh, Confederacy recognizes that it needs more troops. And then they start um, a national draft before anyone else. And then you've got all of, many of these people who initially were not forced to serve and who had opposed secession now being forced to serve and it, it, it puts tremendous pressures and striations within the Confederacy itself. And um, it begins to emanate first from the West and begins to move eastward as federal troops secure the West. Um, and that's what I'm working on. Um, uh, I don't have answers to what this all means yet, 
but uh, it strikes me that it's a it's a more complicated version of the Confederacy that that to some degree is long overdue. Thank you very much for joining me today, Christopher. Appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.